Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Uh, Brother Derek, how you doing today, sir? Great. I've been busy all week. There's just been a lot. And I just want to tell everyone out there a secret is like I'm not always prepared for these things. So, yeah, people think that I'm prepared and I work hard and I spend all this time planning and I don't. Well, not every week. Sometimes I do. But <laughs> oops. Yeah. See, Derek, we've had this conversation before on the show where you basically will say, I'm not very prepared. And then our episode ends up being an hour and a half long. You know, it's I don't think it's so much that you're unprepared. It's just that at least not in the sense that you don't have anything to say. It's just that the less you are prepared, the less concise your remarks are. But you still come bringing some pretty some pretty good heat, which I still have Mm -hmm. to commend you Mm -hmm. for. Like, Derek, you could you could literally read any of these sections and just be ready to riff on any of the gospel principles that are in it or, you know, on the principles implicit in the history of what we're reading. So unprepared Derek is different from unprepared James is what I'm trying to say. If I'm unprepared, I just straight up don't have very much to say. So just to make sure we're clear on Mm -hmm. what Derek's unpreparedness looks like, it's just going to look like a longer episode that I hope Tamara ends up editing down in the event that we well go past our hour so anyway you said you had a lot going on this week is it just you know regular school stuff regular move-in stuff yeah just a lot of those things um yeah that can be annoying yeah tedious so i did some kind of interesting this week um what was that well um i mean i told you i live in harlem so uh you know, I live on campus out here while I'm going to school. I got to go to this event last night called, uh, well, I mean, I don't know what the event was called, but it was at a venue called Revolution Books in Harlem. And it's a venue I've only heard about, but I forgot that I was this close to it. It's about a mile away from where I live. Mm-hmm. But um, at the event, uh, one of my professors was speaking there talking about a, uh, I guess he was having a debate with somebody else I don't know about a particular book. Franz Farnon, I think his name is, but basically a big influencer. Okay, have you heard that name before? No, I I haven't. Okay, I was just barely hearing it. But um, basically one of the, uh, I I guess, a leader in communist thought, I'm not entirely sure, but, you know, it was a review and a debate around his book and the principles of it. So we listened to uh, Dr. Cornell West speak. We listened to this other guy speak. And Carl Dix also spoke, who was like one of the, um, uh, what was he? He was one of the people who led the fight against stop and frisk in New York back in like 2011. He was, he's also one of the founding members of the uh, Revolutionary Communist Party in the U.S. So... There was just a lot of history and a lot of like information in history that like rushed into my brain in that short little two hour period last night. Also, I had this realization out loud that, you know, is not something new to me, but something that like really hit me hard just in their conversation about revolution and the kind of society that they want to create and what the goals of communism were. They basically described the United Order and a fourth Nephi society. So I was just like, hold the heck up. What are you guys talking about? Is a Mormon theocracy communist? So like that was basically where my mind went. And I just thought it was really interesting that a lot of the principles being discussed last night were basically the same as, you know, what Mormons would describe as a perfect government. And I was like, oh, shoot. I don't think a lot of people would take too kindly to the insinuation that a Mormon theocracy is basically communism and uh right 
yeah, I, I, I thought a lot about that. So I'm anxious to read up more on it. I just I, I also realized last night that I don't know as much about communism as I uh, as I thought I did. So I, I'm definitely going to do more research into uh, Carl Dix, into the RCP, and into uh, these uh, you know these influencers of U.S. communist thought because uh, just mm-hmm. seeing all the parallels mm-hmm. between you know, the society they want to create and basically the society that's uh, constructed in 4th Nephi, which is basically a utopian society. They even used some phrases that were, you know, verbatim uh, to describe this these lack of hierarchical mm-hmm. distinctions, of class distinctions and all that stuff. So uh, I, I think it'll be interesting. There's probably papers on, you know, the commonalities between Mormonism or Mormon theocracy and communism, but I haven't researched those yet, so... It's gonna be interesting. I, right, right. I, I'm just really enjoying myself out here. Yeah, that's a longer conversation, but there are substantial similarities and substantial differences, which I'm not going to yeah. go into because that would take a long time. I'm about to say that's de- that definitely merits a conversation, but you know, we we ain't got it today because you know we're here to talk about the come follow me and stuff. Uh, right. But anyway, before we go ahead and launch into that. Want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So we are in Doctrine and Covenants sections 111 to 114 this week. Uh, Mm -hmm. 111 picks up basically about, uh, what is this, about a month after the events of 110 where we got that revelation of, uh, you know, basically everybody coming back and restoring keys. Moses, Elias, Elijah, and, you know, just a great inbreaking of uh, new power, of new revelation in the Kirtland Temple, and also the Lord receiving the Kirtland Temple as his house. So we just are coming off of that high, and then we're immediately moving into a season of, uh, of apostasy, a season of hardship for the church, and uh, we're not very far removed from these great revelations. Prior to receiving the revelation that we now have as section... Um, section 111, the saints were seeking means of paying the uh, heavy debt they incurred. And uh, they were going to do this by going to uh, Salem, actually, Salem, Massachusetts, because they heard there was money or something buried under a house there. Now, something I wanted to address here is look at what Joseph Smith was willing to do in a moment of desperation. Uh, He was, I presume, looking for a sort of ram in the thicket opportunity here. Uh, He heard about some buried treasure from some guy who claimed to be the only person who knew about it. And, you know, I can't really find any information indicating that he Mm -hmm. bore any kind of relationship to the former owner. But uh, Joseph took himself from Kirtland, Ohio, to Salem, Massachusetts on that information. Though, to be fair... It is only the uh, most likely reason that they uh, made this journey. Not quite confirmed that this was, in fact, the reason. Just the most likely one. Now, if this was the reason, then we need to acknowledge that this was not a reasonable move on the part of Joseph Smith. And I'm not bringing that up to clown the man. It, it was a desperate situation, and it's a, a move that I could see myself making. I, I made risky 
moves in desperate situations and those risks weren't always wise and they weren't always calculated. If, if this was the reason that Joseph Smith made this journey, then the fact that he suffered such anxiety about the church's financial affairs to the point that he was willing to go on a 600-mile hike to investigate a house for buried treasure on the strength of nothing but someone's word, you know, there, there's a lesson there's a couple of lessons in that, and uh, one I wanted to highlight for sure is that Joseph, the Lord's anointed servant, even though he wasn't far removed from visions of Christ and the Lord's help, he was still subjected to, or at the very least tempted, by the same anxieties that many of us are. Many of us have made questionable money decisions or gone after get-rich-quick schemes with less stellar judgment because of desperate financial situations. Looking at y'all, Utah. But uh, right. we see yeah, we see the humanity of Joseph in this moment uh, in his capacity to make some you know questionable judgments, even as uh, the prophet, even as someone who literally just had this revelation about a month ago, somebody who was told back in Doctrine and Covenants... Uh, I think it was section 104 that he would have the capacity to pay his debts even as he was humble and worked diligently and some other words I can't remember. Uh, right. Fortunately, this one wasn't horribly costly, this uh, mistake or this folly of Joseph, but we have to acknowledge that there have been times in our recent history where desperation of the Lord's anointed has pushed our leaders to act in less than ideal ways and significant mm -hmm. Idea in significantly less than ideal ways. For example, uh, most recently, Elder Holland last month, an otherwise reasonable and characteristically logically poetic and passionately compassionate dude, just kind of threw all that mess into the wind under the threat of BYU's shifts toward queer affirmation that they might maintain some kind of academic integrity. We've also seen this anciently too when uh, Barnabas. Paul's right-hand man in Antioch was carried away into, into Peter's hypocrisy in uh, Galatians chapter 2. Mm -hmm. An otherwise reasonable Christian who helped build the church became a bigot in that moment, in a moment of discomfort or a moment of pressure or you know even a, perhaps a moment of panic. I don't, I don't know. But that same mess happens today with people. You know, of all kinds, whether you're a leader or not, it happens with all kinds of folks, even allies. How often have would-be allies been silent or otherwise uh, been at the very least complicit in the face of bigotry because of high pressure or because of discomfort or because of unsurety? I'm, I'm pretty critical of these folks personally uh, because they actually know better. And, you know, I know, I know a few of these folks listen to the podcast as well, but there is a, a great temptation to buckle under pressure into silence or into complicity. They, they can find the courage to go to Sunday school, but not necessarily to challenge queer phobia when it happens in their classrooms. And, you know, these same folks, they'll likely be in church on uh, the Sunday when Official Declaration 2 gets discussed, but there will inevitably be a classroom that either ignores Official Declaration 2 or doesn't treat it properly. And then folks won't respond rationally to that. They'll be quiet when people mis misrepresent the priesthood ban uh, or misrepresent its reasons or its implications. Or they'll just straight up join in on the uh, nonsense of affirming things that aren't quite true with regard to the source of that ban or the implications of that ban. Right. 
I'm wondering, what do you think is the contemporary implication? Like, what lessons today should we learn from from this? You know, probably something as simple as don't look for an easy way out in these stressful, high-pressure situations. The easy way out isn't always the right or the best way out. It, it usually isn't the best or the right way out. The easy way out off, often doesn't really exist anyway, like as was the case was with Joseph Smith, or it exacerbates the problem or it compounds problems. To, to go back to Elder Holland again, it was easy for him to go after Matt Easton and to talk about musket fire. But for every issue that his speech supposedly resolved, it created at least three more problems like like a bigoted hydra, you know? Perhaps he appeased some BYU donors, but he also turned off several students, several members, several members of the faculty, and perhaps even endangered BYU status as a respected academic institution. If Paul took the easy way out, despite knowing better, there would have been very likely an ethnic schism in the church, and who knows how long that would have taken to repair. There's still an ethnic schism in our church that we're trying to repair, albeit not hard enough, um, because we have elected to embrace white supremacy rather than to stand against it, which certainly would have been the harder move to make. We can do the same kind of thing in our chapels, any of us. We can hear bigotry from our pulpits and in, and in our Sunday schools, and in choosing not to address it, appease our comfort but create more problems or at the very least perpetuate them. These are acts of faithlessness, according to the Lord. I think that's uh, one of the lessons. Right, that is true. And I think part of that gets back to how much do you have to lose? Because mm -hmm. there's a sense in which Joseph didn't have much to lose by going to Salem. Like that, you know, it cost him some time and it cost him the effort to go there. But it's not like he would have lost tens of thousand dollars if he were wrong about this. The What he misses out on is he just won't get the, the treasure that he found. And I think mm -hmm. this gets back to the power situation in the ward. I think the reason why people don't speak out is they're afraid of what they're going to lose. Mm -hmm. Here I am, a flaming homo. I don't have anything to lose by speaking up. Or at least I don't feel like I have anything to lose. I'm already out as gay. What more than can they take away from me? They've already taken away as much dignity as they can, or they've tried to, and I'm bulletproof from what they, from whatever muskets they're going to aim at me. So I don't have anything to lose. And I think what happens with people, these would-be allies, is they calculate what they, what's going to, what what it might cost them to do the right thing, and. If they're true allies, it will cost them something, right? And so that is a part of the, the, the balance that they have to calculate. Where I want to go with this is a little bit of a detour. So hopefully people liked my detour last week. We're going to do another detour. I wanted to talk about backup plans because we saw this back with the loss of the 116 pages that God, even before then, worked out a backup plan that was much more beautiful than the original plan. And you know what that has to do with driving around Boston, right? So for those of you that don't know, Boston was laid out not by a prophet of the Lord, I have to say. 
because it was laid out by, uh, of course, I'm referring to how Nauvoo was laid out and, and Salt Lake City was laid out in a nice grid. So we, because we love you and we want to know, you want you to know where you are and how to get. So what happened is someone dumped a big pile of spaghetti all over the map and wherever there was a noodle, they put a road. There are like five way intersections. Half the streets are one way. So many confusing turns. It's not a grid at all. Knowing like the way to get, I don't know how people got around Boston before GPS, but that's where I'm going. Even with GPS, there are so many ways that you're in the, you don't know what lane you're supposed to be in in order to turn the right way. So you end up in the wrong lane. You end up missing something. But you know what GPS devices do? They recalculate. Isn't, I remember back when they used to say in a very, in a very um, passive aggressive voice, they're like, recalculating so now google maps doesn't recalculate it just silently it does what the church does when it makes a mistake it just gets on the new path and doesn't even mention that it, there was ever a mistake right so i think there's a lot of recalculate and this is how the lord led people in every dispensation you look at the journey of is of the children of israel through the wilderness there was a whole bunch of recalculating there was like oops well that didn't work out and the god's gonna have a another backup plan and the i call them backup plans but in in many ways they're actually where god wanted us to go in the in the beginning and i think of mother eve right and how being removed from the garden and entering more mortality sounds and having a plan of salvation that sounds like whoops you you messed up and now there's this redemption but no that actually was the plan and i think there's something beautiful about the sacrifice that eve made in order to access this what i'm going to call a backup plan and i think this should shed light on queer journeys in the church and i go back to the text here it says in verse 9 10 and 11 of section 111 it says and inquire diligently concerning the more ancient inhabitants and founders of this city for there are more treasures than one for you in this city therefore be ye as wise as serpents and yet without sin and i will order all things for your good as fast as ye are able to receive them. So two things that I learned from this. There's more treasures than one for you. People ask Derek, how can you be a, me a member of the church? There's more treasures than one in this church. People know only about the one that, that's for like straight white men. There's a treasure there. But there's more than one treasure in this church. There's more than one uh, backup plan for those that don't fit the plan. And in verse 11, we will attain this wisdom and these treasures as fast as we are able to receive them and i think there's a limiting factor on the human end that mm -hmm. limits what god is able to give us and this is true individually Definitely. and collectively in the church and i Definitely. don't need to go into the details about how that applies to our lack of revelation and uh clear light and understanding on lgbtq issues but let me just go and talk about mother eve again the challenge is we get into what a lot of people look at as gender complementarity and how there's you know men and women have different roles and they're not the same 
and people's options should be limited based on what gender they are. And that's where we get into trouble. Once you start artificially limiting people solely on what gender they are, we've got a problem. And we see that this assumption is behind straight supremacy, it's behind male supremacy, and it's also behind cisgender supremacy as well. All three of those have in common that whatever you are anatomically identified to be at birth, that's going to limit your options, right? People say, well, Derek, you were assigned male at birth, you are a man, therefore you cannot date a man, but if you had been a woman, you can, right? All of these things are rooted in the same, uh, the same prejudice and the same assumption, the same wrong-headed assumption that people's options should be artificially limited by their birth. But let's go into 1 Corinthians 11. Here we get Paul. Got a lot back of people, to the Bible. New yeah, going to find a way to get back to the Bible. Yes. So I think there's a, there's a challenge when we talk about Eve, Adam and Eve, or when we talk about Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, people immediately want to exploit that in the interest of heterosexism. Mm. And we got to deal with that. Yeah. Because for what for some people is the plan is not going to work for me. There's got to be a backup plan. And that's what I want to unpack here in 1 Corinthians 11. So just to review for people, 1 Corinthians 11 starts out really about church order in worship services and head coverings and the role of women. So Paul spends the first part of 1 Corinthians 11 talking about how man is the head of woman and that man was created first and then woman and so there's this sort of subordinate position for women and now i'm not gonna agree with paul and where he goes with all this but what's interesting is after like several verses of that mess paul says and here it is in verses 11 and 12 he says in any case in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman. But all things come from God. And I find something very, two, two interesting things about that. One is, um, in the King James, it says, Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. Have you heard people in the church use this? verse to talk about um, marriage and sealing and how men and women are incomplete without each other and you can't be exalted without the other, uh, that type of mess, right? Have you heard this? Yeah, I've heard it. This specific verse, I've heard a number of people in the church use it to say that man is incomplete without a wife and a woman is incomplete without a husband, which isn't exactly what it says. Mm-hmm. And so here's how I'm going to unpack this. What you have to realize is the context. Remember back our creator? Like we're going to, maybe I should remind people. Maybe I should remind people about creator. Not only do you have to get the content right, but you have to get the rationale right, the audience right, the tone right, the emphasis right. And if there are any rebuttal texts that uh sort of compensate for or modify or abrogate this text elsewhere in the scripture, you got to know those other contrasting texts. 
So let's do that here with this verse. Uh, by the way, the critical Greek texts have the the clause in a different order than the King James, so that's why it, it's uh, a little different. But anyway, so let's talk about this. What we have to realize is what this verse is doing. What this verse doing is starting with a very, very significant conjunction, plain, which is one of the strongest ways of saying but, or nevertheless, or on the contrary. So we've got a significant contrast with what's coming before. Well, what was coming before was all this business about headship and the priority Sorry, of about men. about what? What? About headship? Is that what you said? Headship. That is, okay, that just men sure. have headship over women. And all that right. Christ have headship, right? And the, that that women was women were created for men, and all this other stuff. Got you, got you. So after that type of setup, it's almost like a setup for a sting operation. Here we've got verse eleven, which is really a gotcha. And the question we have to ask is, who is the audience of this gotcha? Is it your gay couple? Is it your single person? Is Paul trying to use this against? single people, right? Because you could say, well, man is nothing without a wife. A woman is nothing without a husband. This is a gotcha against single people, or it's a gotcha against same gender couples. And no, it's not. It is not a gotcha against either of those. It is a gotcha against the men who would be emboldened by the previous verses to think they're superior to women. That's the point of this verse. That's why Paul, Paul is very carefully crafting in all of his letters concessions or some contrasts to make sure that he's not misunderstood. He'll, he'll say something and then he'll say something to contrast or head off a misconception. And the misconception, like I said, isn't like, oh no, you might be gay or you might be single, so therefore this is going to be a, a musket fired at you because you're you can't be complete without the other gender. No, that's not what it is all. It is a saying that in the church, we need men and women. And in the world, we need people of all genders. And in the church, we need people of all genders. We, we're not independent of each other. We're, in de we're interdependent the way you'll see in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 12, you've got the body of Christ with many mutual independent, uh, mutual interdependent members. And let's go back to 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul clearly emphasizes the validity of the single life. He says he himself is single. If people are single, they need not marry. In fact, it might be better if they don't marry. Like, he is clearly not in the context of 1 Corinthians using this verse to put single people in, in their place. And, you know, a lot of people say they'll use this nature argument, like, oh, no, like, Men and women have to be together because same-gender couples cannot procreate. I mean, there's a lot of problems with arguments from nature. I know that they were popular among the Stoics, but I find arguments from nature almost always inadmissible because of where they can lead. Um, yeah, I, just, I don't even want to go there because of time. <laughs> That's fair. But I'll, because of I'll, time, okay. I'll come back. I'll come back to this, these arguments from nature. Okay. So in the context, like I said, yes, this gotcha is for the men who would have been emboldened by the previous verses to think that women are inferior. 
And we have to put this, let's look at our rebuttal text in Galatians 3.28 that says that in Christ there is neither male nor female. Paul himself says very clearly that there's really no difference. There's no distinction that in Christ we are all one. And there's, there's no concept of male and female where it really matters. Now, of course, in Corinth, you've got some concession to the world around them. Yes, in Christ, you're neither male nor female, but you still have to live in this world that has all these things. And a, th a similar thing is true for Paul's approach to slavery. Yes, in, in Christ, there's neither slave nor free, but still this uh, structural imbalance exists and has to be navigated in the rest of the world. Well, that's another conversation. But I want to quote St. John Chrysostom, who lived in the 4th century, and here's from his homilies on the epistles of Paul to the Corinthians 26, 5. Here's what he says about this particular verse. Having talked about the glory of the man, Paul now reestablishes the balance so as not to exalt the man beyond what is his due, nor to oppress the woman. In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Each one of the two is the cause of the other, God being the cause of all. And that is where we get back to it, right? We end up before God the same. Like, all of this should be subsisting under God. And you can see this from verse 12. People say that verse 11 must be about marriage. It's not about marriage at all. Because in Paul's system, even unmarried women need to wear the head covering. This is, this is not based on, on marriage. The other th reason why it's not based on marriage is verse 12. It says, for just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman. Verse 12 is talking about a mother-son relationship. It's talking about all sorts of relationships. It's not just, oh, you need a, to be completed by the other gender. No, like his primary example here of interdependence is men being born of women. So this, this isn't even about marriage, or it's not primarily about marriage, but marriage is just one of the ways that people can relate. But in the whole, this interdependence where in the church we need people of all genders. That's, to me, what it's saying. Not in the marriage you need people of all genders. And here's another proof of this is you have to look at the scholarly work on 1 Corinthians. And it's a mess, actually. No Scholars do not agree on what the problem exactly was in Corinth. Scholars do not agree on what Paul's solution is or why we, we have competent, trained scholars who have no idea what to make of this. And there's so many different ways of taking this. Part of it is we don't have all the historical details of what was going on in Corinth. This may have been something local to Corinth because Paul never writes about this elsewhere. We don't know what to do with this. So there's a responsible principle that says we should interpret the obscure texts in scripture in light of the clear ones because we know the clear ones we should use the clear ones as a way of interpreting the ones that are a little bit unclear rather than having some mess mess up the whole thing that we know and the clear one for me is galatians 328 Almost all scholars of the New Testament agree on what the problem was in Galatia and what Paul's solution was in Galatia, in part because we have secondary witnesses in the book of Acts and also Romans about how 
the whole Gentile inclusion mess happened. We know what Paul's dealing with and what his solution was. His solution was that Gentiles need not be circumcised, and what the problem was isn't whether Gentiles should be included, but on what terms. Do they have to have the same covenant path that Abraham was given in Genesis 17, where he was required to be circumcised? And up until the first century, that's what it meant to be part of God's covenant people, was if you were male, to be circumcised, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and if you were of any gender, to obey the laws of Moses, the Torah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so my point is we know Galatians 3.28, we should use that to sort of mitigate or control or limit the irresponsible mess that could come out of 1 Corinthians 11. So that's Mm -hmm. where I'm going with this. And I'm wondering, um, yeah, what is your response to some of these things? Any, Any thoughts about that? Uh, only some that moderately segue us into 112. Uh, we don't have to go there right now, but one of the things that I remember reading in my uh, preparation to discuss section 112 was that uh, Thomas Marsh's problem, and you know, section 112 is basically a, a revelation mm-hmm. given to Thomas B. Marsh, uh, you know, in an effort to of Thomas B. Marsh to seek reconciliation and, uh, you know, mm-hmm counsel from joseph smith about their situation because again there's a lot of apostasy and stuff and uh, other issues afflicting the church but um i was thinking specifically about how thomas's folly in this particular situation Mm -hmm. was how selectively he read the revelation that was given to him he didn't Mm -hmm. read the whole thing yeah he didn't take in the whole thing and uh ultimately he used the parts of the revelation that was dictated to him by Joseph Smith himself, that he wrote out himself, Thomas did, and ultimately proof-texted that revelation to act how he pleased, to, to you know, remind himself of his high and mighty position as the president of the Twelve, mm-hmm. and basically kind of throw his power around in ways that ultimately harmed, you know, others and, uh, and, uh, and, and the church and himself. So, you know, ultimately that all led, uh, you know, President Marsh to apostatize, 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 I don't know what the word is, but Mm -hmm. to uh, go apostate. And that's primarily because he didn't receive the full text. He didn't receive the fullness of what the Lord had for him. And I see a lot of members of the church doing that today, especially when we talk about these issues with regard to the queer community. We see people trying to use these particular texts um, you know, you know, you quoted the neither is the man without the woman or the woman without the man, but they don't read Galatians three twenty eight. You know, I say often enough that mm. um Or they don't even read the next verse, which shows they, that right. it's about mother son. It's about right. it's, it's about it's not it's not even about marriage. Right. Right, right. Like the whole the whole thing is basically that uh you know, like I said, I've said many times that for every one verse that you could find that maybe, maybe, big maybe, says anything ought of, uh, says anything ill of, um, you know, gay identity or gay relationships, you will find scores more mm-hmm. that will talk about equality, equity, liberty, inclusion, the dis- the dissolution of hierarchical distinctions on racial lines, on ethnic lines, mm-hmm, lingual mm-hmm. lines, cultural lines, and, you know, you could even say gender lines. I mean, we could say gender lines 
even though they didn't have any concept of, uh, or sorry, orientation lines, even though they didn't really have any concept of orientation back then. But, you know, that was the primary thought going through my head. I was just like, look, this is the same mistake. Like these uh, misunderstandings, this is literally the same mistake that Thomas B. Marsh made and ultimately the mistake that led him to, you know, leave the church. Yeah, and I've even seen people use Heavenly Mother as a gotcha yes, to put Heavenly gay Mother men too. in their place. And they're yes, they're trying yes. to play straight women and gay men off of each other and divide and conquer and cause horizontal hostility between these two different oppressed groups right. when our right. oppressions are really rooted in, like I said, this deterministic idea of whatever gender you were assigned with that should limit your options in life. And people will use this verse that says, um, neither is the man without the woman or the woman without the man in the Lord to say, look, you have to have a, um, you can't be same gender married. And here's my point is that, and then they'll say, well, you have to have a man and a woman to have a baby, which actually isn't true. But they'll say this as an argument from nature saying, look, you can't have one without the other if you're going to have any offspring. And my point, my rebuttal to that in part would be, well, you know what else doesn't have off, make offspring is singlehood, right? And Paul clearly promotes singlehood, not just to permits, but promotes it in, in the seventh chapter. And what this would say is that, that being in a gay relationship is no worse than being single. So if you're going to be here on earth and you, whatever, why not just be in a gay relationship? It's the same as being single, right? They haven't won any points. I mean, they, they haven't won any points. And this argument, again, about from nature doesn't really, doesn't really work out. I mean, if you take that to its conclusion, if you and your spouse, uh, for some reason, are, are unable to have children, what you should do is divorce your spouse and marry someone who you can have children with because that's the that's the defining factor of whether a marriage is justified is whether it can produce children and then what you've got is king henry the 8th who divorced or beheaded his wives so that he could get an heir a male heir like is that really the the logical conclusion of your argument against nature or there's another one. Oh, I'm, I don't know if I should say this, but it's going to expose the futility of these arguments against nature. And this is going to be a little bit, um, what is the word? Weird. But somebody could use nature to say, look, for conception to occur, we want there to be babies, but for conception to occur, there's an asymmetry. A woman need not have an orgasm in order to bear a child, but the man almost essentially does. So nature prefers the orgasms of men because they're necessary and does not prefer or prioritize the orgasms of women because they're not necessary for conception. If you make baby making your entire goal, you have a significant injustice. You, we talk about a wage gap with women, but there's also an orgasm gap. <laughs> yep. Yep. And this is bad. Yes, and sir. like we can't use nature to justify like our our ethical way of treating other people. We just can't. And 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 so that's 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 another mess with this argument against nature. 
<laughs> I'm so glad you brought this up, by the way. I, I was just learning about, uh, who was it? Uh, Tillich's arguments against natural theology just this week. Mm-hmm. So, mm. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm so glad you're mentioning this, and I'm actually able to somewhat follow it or refer to what I've just learned. Yeah, and I just want to bring in the Mujerista theology because I was reading this paper, and this is in the Handbook of Mormonism and Gender, edited by Petrie and Hoyt. And there's a chapter on Mujerista theology by Sujay Vega. And I'm just going to read, she talks about LDS Latinas through a Mujerista theological lens. And Mujer is the uh, Spanish word for woman. And so this is the, the, the Latina analogy of womanist theology that we have in, um, for black women. And so let me just go down and read one paragraph out of this amazing essay. And here's what it says. She's talking about uh, a Latina woman, women. And here's what she says. Traditionally overlooked or devalued because of their attributed roles in domestic spaces, Mujerista theology acknowledged that Latina women provided a rich viewpoint and quotidian examples of embodied faith. Isasi Diaz expressed, Instead of devaluing and rejecting our traditional roles in our families, what Latinas want is the opposite. We want the value of those roles to be recognized and their status to be enhanced. God was not housed in rituals or repetitive prayer. Instead, Latinas provided incredible opportunities to see faith enacted through mothering and domesticity. As Rodriguez explained, or as Rodriguez emphasized, Latina women are ordinary prophets and saints who live in the community, who act in the community for the same purpose, to give life, to give life abundantly. They do this against the discrimination and marginality of their social situation. Reframing Latinas as prophets and saints whose daily activities manifest the divine both Isasi Diaz and Rodriguez turned theology toward a deeper appreciation for Latina contributions. The renowned theologian and scholar of womanism, Katie Cannon, similarly championed the inclusion of black womanist voices. For Cannon, the experiences of women of color in the church should no longer be anecdotal evidence. Instead, they should be recognized beyond serving as superfluous appendages add-ons to the bottom of core course syllabi as endnotes in church publications or as impotent members. Womanist, mujerista, and Latina feminist theological approaches validated the woman's active participation in their church and highlighted how their experience in faith could contribute to ministerial lessons for all believers. Close quote. So, I'm... I'm looking at this paragraph in a way of sort of contrasting with some of what we were talking about earlier, whereas some of us radical white feminists or queer theorists, we want to just abolish gender roles, right? I'd I'd love to abolish gender roles because they limit me. They limit people. But in certain cultural contexts, I imagine in the black community and in Latina communities, uh, many women appreciate the women's roles. And you have examples here of, instead of diminishing these roles, 
that they should be recognized and their status should be enhanced rather than getting rid of gender roles. And so there's uh, women in position differently in different cultural backgrounds will have different versions of feminism and that is something to take into account. That's kind of what I was saying and this can also serve to loop back around to what Paul was doing. Paul did not in 1 Corinthians 11 get rid of gender roles. In fact, he wanted right. to retain at least some social distinction in dress between men and women in Corinth. And we don't know why. Maybe he did that because uh, of the missionary necessity for people to blend in somewhat with the Roman world, right? We don't know why, if it's an eternal reason or if it's a practical reason, uh, why he did that. And so this is just something that we need to think responsibly about now, being moved by the Spirit, having a revelation for today, for the situation we're in. That's kind of where I want to wrap up my thoughts about section 121 or 111 and, and go back to this idea of backup plans. Like we should recalculate, we should look at what we're doing, admit that we may have some follies, admit, admit that there may be other treasures, admit that there might be maybe multiple covenant paths for people. And that's kind of where I am going to end my thoughts for today. I was not expecting that. I'm impressed. We might actually do this in under an hour. Oops. <laughs> nah, this is great. This is impressive. I'm I'm happy for us. In 114, I I, I may have wanted to speak briefly on just how mm -hmm. uh, other people or specifically leaders have been replaced for unfaithfulness and like how that's already kind of uh, subversively happening, so to speak. And I think that's another example, sort of a backup plan, is like God yes, called yes. someone into this position and then they used their agency to do whatever and then God is like, nope, we're going to recalculate, we're going we're gonna to do something else. And of course, I didn't even mention crash theory and option three thinking. This is behind almost every section of the Doctrine and Covenants is option three thinking of you're going to not deny the crash and you're not going to completely throw out the narrative and go out and abandon the covenant community. But what you're going to do is say, look, we're going to recalculate. We're going to retell the narrative in light of the crash and move on. That's what 111 did because someone could have gone and said, you know what? This didn't work. Um, you're a false prophet. You led us all the way to Salem and there wasn't anything here. That's not what they did. They didn't go option two. They went option three and made meaning in light of the crash, which they did not deny. And I think we're, we are at an intersection in the church where we, as a church, haven't quite accepted that our narrative crashes for queer people. Like this idea of this pretty family and everything works out, it crashes and the brethren literally don't know what to do. They admit now that they don't know what to do. They've been on their knees allegedly praying and crying and they don't know what to do. They don't know what to do for us, and they don't. They're starting to admit that the thing that the narrative crashes for us, but they don't know how to go option three. And of course, I know how to go option three. What you do is dig deeper into the tradition, into the sources, and find things that are already there 
that lead to the inclusion of all people and lead to the reconstruction of the narrative. And I'm now talking more and more, but people don't want to hear me talk, so I'm going <laughs> to now stop talking. It's all good, man. It's all good. Well, anyway, then, thank you for sharing those thoughts. Uh, where can people... You know what? I'm going to put this in the notes because uh, coincidentally, I actually mm-hmm. learned about Muhari's the theology for the first time this week myself. It was in one of my readings for systematic theology class. So that's mm. two things you've acknowledged that I'm just hearing about for the first time this week at school. So I'm one step closer to becoming like Derek. Oh, well... It's the whole purpose. I don't, I don't know if I told y'all this, but this is basically the whole reason I'm going back to school is because like... I am tired of not being a better conversation partner for Derek. Hopefully the people there don't put you through the ringer that I do. No, um, people have been really cool, actually, and I'm very grateful for it, honestly. Um, You know, I'm making friends here who have asked me about my faith, how I, uh, you know, the standard question of how I exist in this space. Uh, But Cornell West was very cool about it. Um, You know, he even talked about how his initial experiences with uh, the LDS faith were actually very positive. Uh, the, the people that got that ultimately got him into his undergrad at Harvard, I think, uh, was a Mormon dude, a director of admissions. Mm. And uh, Dr. Cornell West was part of the first crop of this mass bringing in of African-American scholars. Like, whereas the previous year they had done five, they brought in the Mormon director of admissions, and that year they got in like almost a hundred and Dr. West wow. was apparently one of those, uh, one of those men. So he has a very high opinion of us and, you know, of all people's theology, I guess he, he has a lot of respect for folks, but, uh, my fellow students, you know, they have been really cool about things. They've just been mm-hmm. mostly curious. No, nobody's been antagonistic or anything. So right. uh, that's been really nice. Well, that reminds me of, um, whoops, you reminded me of something. All but good. anyway, <laughs> so, Bonhoeffer, of course, as you know, he studied at and lectured at, at, at Union uh, in the United States. And Union actually invited him to come back and say, look, we know that, uh, that the Nazis are going to crack down on you. So why don't you just come here and, and, and study in America, study and teach in America? You're a brilliant theologian. Come, we need the. And you know what his answer was for why he didn't flee Germany? No, I don't. He said that if he does not stay throughout this, the, the war and stay in Germany and live with the people and suffer with the people, he has no right to come back to Germany and rebuild it after the war. He knew the Nazis were going to lose the war. And of course, the Nazis killed him and he, and he didn't actually get to live past the war. But when people ask me why I stay in the church... It's almost like the reason why Bonhoeffer stayed in Germany. I'm not saying that the church is like the Nazis, but I'm saying the church is in it is a attacked, hostile place. But just, it, it, just like Germany was distorted and attacked by the Nazis and needed to be healed, the church today, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is being attacked by racism and homophobia and sexism and capitalism and all this other mess. And yeah, that's going to get fixed. But I have no right to help rebuild the church after we fix it if I'm not here in, in the trenches when it's happening, right? All these people who leave the church, they aren't coming back. They're not coming back after official Declaration 3 makes everything right for queer people. They're not going to come back. I should stop talking. I already said that.
<laughs> it's all good, man. It's all good. Thank you for sharing those thoughts as well. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that about Bonhoeffer. Um, anyway, before we go ahead and wrap up, want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. Mm -hmm. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That is dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, oh, we got we got a couple new podcasts in the in the Dialogue Podcast Network before I forget. What's, what's this one? Something about funeral potatoes. It says discussing taboo, singlehood, and more for anyone exploring uh, their faith. They got new episodes every Wednesday. Their website is potatoesward.com. P-O-T-A-T-O-E-S ward.com. So uh, it looks like they've been out here for a minute, but they just joined the Dialogue Podcast Network, it looks mm-hmm. like, okay. within the last couple weeks. So be, be sure to check them out as well. I want to make sure I put y'all on to the new folks that uh, join the network. Well, that's great. I'll have to check them out. Yes. I don't have the name of the host. Anyway, uh, where can people find us, Derek? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. You can also find us at BTBLDS on Twitter and Instagram, and then search for us on Facebook. Yes, yes. Um, and also a special thanks, David Doyle as well, for uh, you know his work of editing the story the transcripts every week uh also want to thank stephanie martz and angela carter for being a big help with uh social media and the team doing the incredible work of assembling our uh, episode outlines stephanie peterson yeah. gabrielle honda christine lestarge uh, jen altman and beth johnson uh, so if you want access to these outlines uh you can find them in our uh, show notes you can also find them in the drop down menu uh, on our website, beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Um, and there's a there's a link, isn't there, Derek? Right. If you go to tinyurl.com slash btboutlines, they will be there. Yes. So we got all those means yeah. for y'all to find these outlines. And the outlines also include uh, outlines from uh, the Faithful Feminist episodes and the Holy mm. Human episodes. So you're getting a lot of value in them little, uh, in these outlines. They're... They're, they're quite good. I've started using them for my own recaps and also for constructing yeah. uh, my own notes for the future. They're very, they're yeah. going to be very useful when we finally decide to create additional materials when, uh, you know, when we can't do Come Follow Me anymore. Yeah, you know, they, uh, I have this idea. I have a challenge for all of our listeners. I know a lot of our listeners, by word of mouth, tell others, oh, you got to listen to Beyond the Block. But here's a more specific challenge to our listeners. What I want you to do is pick one or maybe two episodes that really spoke to you. And instead of saying, well, listen to Beyond the Block, post that specific episode, a link to that specific episode, and say, I want everyone to listen to this episode because it spoke to me in this way and it solved this concern or question that I have or it helped me in this way. And that will, and then people will listen to that one episode and they'll get to know a little bit more about you that way. And they'll get to know more about Beyond the Block. Because I know I've we've gotten a lot of good feedback about the most recent episode where we had this detour about temple theology. Yeah. 
that a lot of people really appreciated that episode. And I enjoyed that episode because temple theology, that is not something I'm accustomed to discussing. Um, Not a lot of faiths talk about temples Mm -hmm, at mm -hmm. all. So like we have very few opportunities even here at school to uh, talk temple theology. So I'm I'm glad we had that opportunity last week to do so. Well, there's a lot about temple in the Bible. Yes, so, there's a lot about temples. Anyway, I we should get going. Yes, is there anything or any other uh, events we got to put people on? Next week is going to be General Conference, or I guess right. this past weekend was General Conference. So since we're recording this episode prior to General Conference, that's why we didn't cover it. But we will be likely discussing it in next week's episode. So uh, be looking right. for we will that see what happens. next week. We, yeah, we will see what happens. Um, yeah, if there's nothing else, thank you all for uh, joining us. Till we meet again next week. Okay, till we meet again next week. Bye.